0: Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators
1: in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode.
2: Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
3: Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by w 3 In this episode, the Everything Compliance Gang talks about stories that they're going to be following in early 2022. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for the first episode of Everything Compliance for the year 2022. We have the full gang today. Karen Woody, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, and Jonathan Marks. Jay Rosen will be joining us momentarily. And we're going to take a look at uh, some of the key topics and stories that er the panelists are going to be looking at in 2022. So uh, based upon the uh, people on my screen, Karen, we're going to start with you. Then we'll go to Matt, then Mr. Armstrong, then Mr. Marks, and we'll conclude with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. So, Karen, what are some of the uh, issues that have caught your eye or are you going to be looking at in 2022?
2: Sure, thanks. I'm happy to be back. Happy 22, 2022 all. <laughs> um, so two issues that are percolated up again, none of these are terribly new, but I think we'll get extra attention in this year uh, are SPACs again, and then uh, insider trading, which sometimes is near and dear to my heart because I teach a seminar on it. Um, so I'll start with the issue with SPACs. As we know, SPACs have sort of cooled off. And some of that, I think, is driven by this fear of regulation and that the SEC is going to start cracking down on these uh, structures of of going public via a a manner that some consider a Trojan horse in some ways. Um, And so the thing that caught my eye this week, that just happened this week, was a decision out of Delaware, not an SEC decision or an SEC enforcement action, but one that I think will have pretty significant ripples throughout um, the SPAC community Um, and what it was is that the Delaware Court of Chancery uh, allowed um, you know they denied a motion to dismiss so they allowed a claim to proceed against the SPAC and its sponsors and its directors and the gist of the claim really is something that I think goes to the heart of a lot of issues with SPACs and that is the conflicting interests among all the players involved in a SPAC uh, structure So the the case is about a SPAC called Churchill. Um, The sponsor is, um, the sponsor entity is really controlled by a guy named Michael Klein. And he handpicked a number of the directors um, that were involved also with the sponsor. And the claim against Mr. Klein and the other directors goes to this idea that they are given um, a number of founder shares in the SPAC, the other equity structure um, for the SPAC involved a number of Class A shares that would be held by the public stockholders. And as we know, as we sort of look at how SPACs work, the issue here is within the time that the SPAC had to merge with someone else, there are you know, significant differences in the interests among class A, Class B founder share, founder shareholders. Um, the gist is that uh, if the SPAC didn't merge with someone within the 24 months this back then liquidates, meaning all the public shareholders receive only just, you know, their pro rata share back. Um, For this one, it would have been $10 plus interest, so they would have made about $0.04 per share. But in contrast, the Class B shares are worthless. So there's already an incentive for the founder shares to really push for any type of a deal. Um, There's other issues with this, and and that involves um, the amount that uh, the the founder would have received if a merger had gone through. Anyway, long story short, fast forward, they end up doing a merger um, and start uh, a a new company called MultiPlan. And what happens here is MultiPlan, of course, stock drops initially. The Class A shareholders lose a lot of money. And so people are annoyed and want to come (laughs) and figure out what happened. So they bring this class action and they they bring a claim in Delaware. The issue here, again, like I said, is that there's a, there's, a conflict in, there's a conflicting interest among all these parties. Michael Klein, of course, wants this SPAC to go through, wants the merger to go through. The merger proxy statement wasn't fully um, clear about a competitor that resulted in some of the drop on the stock price. So what happened is that the Delaware court looked at this claim and said, yeah, we see enough here to find potential breaches of fiduciary duty against even the SPAC directors and this issue of a conflict among all of these players and obviously with um, Michael Klein. So what's happening here is this sort of new application of fiduciary duty principles in these SPAC contexts um, that I think is going to generate a lot of um, buzz and a lot of um, commentary and certainly maybe in potential additional claims like this because of the nature of how SPACs are set up and sort of this implicit conflict among um, both the founders and then uh, the public shareholders. So I think this will be interesting. It definitely is a shot across the bow. We'll see where it goes from here, but I think it's one that really gets to the heart of, of the problems inherent with, with how SPACs are set up. The other issue, of course, is, as I said, insider trading. We're still gonna watch the um, you know always interesting um, claims about shadow trading. Um, that one, will, I think, won't go away anytime soon. Of course, it's the Panawat case that's going forward in the Northern District of California. And as anyone who's sort of following along with that, they know that the issue there is that an insider traded not in his company in, the, in terms of the, what, what the information he learned about. He figured out how to trade in a similar company that he realized would have the same maybe uh, result so the question is whether or not that actually constitutes insider trading or just something that's a clever way to figure out maybe a ripple effect. Um, so the SEC is pursuing this. It's more of a novel application of really the misappropriation theory. Uh, and so we'll see if um, it holds up and if the SEC is able to stretch what they consider to be um, insider trading. So those are the two issues on, on my docket this year to really closely follow. Uh,
3: And I'll stop there. Well, Karen, I have a question for you on the multi-plan Delaware case, because I also read that opinion. And a couple of things stood out for me. First of all, the court acknowledged there was an inherent conflict of interest, but they said that because it was disclosed, that was okay. And that inherent conflict of interest is the one you pointed out between the uh, SPAC founders and the resulting shareholders. But the thing that struck me about this case was there was actually material information that the SPAC founders had they didn't release to the shareholders. And doesn't that go just to a basic, as fraudulent a shareholder action as you can have when the owners of the SPAC know that this stock is going to be worth significantly less value for factors and don't disclose that uh, material information to investors?
2: Yeah. And I think that the court agreed with with exactly what you're saying, that that's that was the biggest sort of uh, sin, if you would, of, of these things, that that, that alone, um, that failure to disclose really is what drove these, you know, the, the court to say there's enough here to really suggest that this is a breach of fiduciary duty and, um, and, and a, you know, a, a potential loyalty claim, um, you know. And, and so I think I think you're right. That became really uh, one of the biggest drivers, I think, of how the court came out on that.
3: Matt, do you have a question or comment for Karen?
0: Well, I I just have a comment maybe about the broader economic landscape for what SPACs are going through and how I think that will then rapidly become relevant for a lot of compliance officers and internal audit professionals. Um, We have to remember, one, a lot of companies that have gone public within the last year, which a lot of those have been SPACs, uh, they're not doing that well. Uh, Most of the stock market... other than the truly large among the s p 500 a lot of the stock market is not trading where they were and they're trading below ipo prices this is especially true for smaller firms that might have gone out with a spac in the last 12 months um so first off there's going to be a lot of unhappy shareholders like why did i buy this and for SPACs that have not yet gone public well if you're working on an 18 to 24 month window And I think most of SPACs, uh, they have 18 months to find a private company to merge with. Most of the SPACs that are out there right now, they kind of held their IPO the end of 2020, early 2021. Well, what's 18 months after that? That's May or June of 2022. That is around the corner. So I do think we're going to see a lot of SPACs that, you know, maybe they promised to be an ESG target company when they went out. You know, like, oh, geez, we got to close a deal in six weeks, Uh, that methane and oil producer over there, let's just acquire them and be done with it. There's going to be that kind of stuff that happens. And a lot of loosey goosey uh, approach to disclosing embarrassing details that would ruin your merger. I think that's really going to be a big thing. And for a lot of businesses, the stock market is not being kind to you anyways. And that's before we start raising interest rates, which I think the Fed will do in about two more months. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot of messy stuff happen between March, April of this year to Labor Day. A whole lot of SPACs are just going to do a whole lot of wacko deals, and it's going to cause trouble.
3: So, Matt Kelly, what uh, are you looking at in 2022?
0: Well, I picked two things that on the surface are very different, but I promise everybody watching uh, that I do have a common theme here that I also think is going to be big for 2022. One thing that I think is probably going to be happening sooner rather than later is the Securities and Exchange Commission. They are going to adopt some sort of rule for enhanced disclosure of ESG risks and information. Uh, What exactly is that going to look like? We're not entirely sure, although I am willing to bet a significant amount of money that the SEC will say filers must use a widely recognized sustainability framework to assess your material issues and figure out what you should disclose to investors and stakeholders. Probably the SEC will not specifically say use this framework right here, but they might do something like point to the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board and its framework, maybe a lot of people will glom onto that. Maybe they'll just list a couple. Um, Maybe they will try and harmonize whatever they want to do with what the European Union is doing. But we're going to see some sort of rule for enhanced ESG disclosures. And that means there's going to be a lot of third party risk management that comes into play. Um, You are going to have to ask your significant suppliers whether they have any issues around forced labor, environmental pollution, corruption, all sorts of issues like that. Uh, And it is going to be a third party risk challenge in two ways. You, the company, you're going to need to figure out how do I extract this information from a specific third party? What question am I supposed to ask? Why is that question relevant to my shareholders versus some other question? But you know, you're going to be looking at the third parties at an individual level, and then you're going to have to manage whatever assurances and documentation these third parties give you. You're going to have to manage all of that at scale so you can compile your own ESG report for regulators, investors, consumers, customers, any other business partners who will be asking the same ESG stuff of you that you are asking of your third parties. So it's going to be a big third-party risk management ESG challenge that is coming down the road. That's issue number one. The other issue that has intrigued me lately is actually happening right now. It just started a couple of weeks ago at the end of 2021, is this cybersecurity vulnerability known as Log4j. So Log4j is a flaw and a widely used piece of Java software where a hacker could Find some way, you might have a form on your website that uses log4j to record transactions. Well, they could actually not put a string of text in that little form. They could put a command in that form and trick log4j into logging that command to go look at this other web server way over here. And then your site goes there and then the hackers are running that. They can control your systems. They can get into you that way. So this is a big mess because Log4j has existed for nearly 20 years. The flaw has been around for at least, they think about eight years, in one of the most popular and widely used pieces of software around in the whole world. So you have millions of systems and websites and apps and devices that probably have Log4j that need to be patched. Okay, well, the people who run Java software, the Apache Software Foundation, They announced the flaw and offered a patch in December. So right now there's this race going on. All the hackers are racing to find and exploit log4j in your system before you patch it all. You, the company, you're racing to patch it all before the attacker finds some device on your network that wasn't patched. And then they use it. And now they're in your system and they're stealing data. They're executing commands. They're authorizing wire transfers and whatever else they might be doing. So there's this gigantic challenge, and a big part of it is third-party risk management. All the tech vendors you use, all the devices that independent contractors showing up at your facilities, and they borrow your Wi-Fi, all of the networks your at-home employees in this hybrid environment, all the at-home networks they're using at Starbucks or their living room or the library, You have no idea where log4j's flaw might still be lurking. So you have to somehow get assurance from every third party on your network, including providers, employees, business partners, visitors. You have to get that information from them that they don't have a log4j issue anymore. And you have to manage all of that at scale. The exact same problem, fundamentally, as ESG is posing. And that, that's my point. That's my common theme here, is that we're going to see a much larger need for a holistic approach to third-party governance. Because if we don't have that holistic approach, if you're doing this manually, you will never keep up with log4j, certainly, before the damage is done. You're never going to get a correct view of your ESG. And more than that, we're all going to drive each other nuts, with third-party assurance requests. Like, how many questionnaires are we going to have to do here? Because there's ESG, there's FCPA, there might be log4j, which is only the cybersecurity flaw of the moment. There's going to be another one next month and another one after that. And if we keep bombarding each other with these third-party risk assurance questionnaires, we're all going to drive each other crazy until the world explodes. Um, So how can businesses build a more comprehensive more automated approach to all of their third-party risks. And then you can kick that report back to the board to say, don't worry, our third parties are under control. Now we can proceed with our strategic objectives, which is all the board wants to hear from the risk officer or the compliance officer or the audit officer. They don't want a recitation of every single risk and how well it's been assured. They want to know the supply chain is handled. It's not going to screw us up for our next quarter's plans or the big merger. And that's the kind of stuff that we have to figure out. That's true in 2022. It'll probably be true for the rest of our natural lives. But that's the sort of thing I'm looking at this year.
3: So, Matt, um, the other thing that really intrigued me about, um, I think the SEC pronouncement, but was the risk shifting involved here? That I think it was the SEC that said, Uh, The responsibility is on you, Mr. and Mrs. Company, and that even if you have used the software for quite some time, and even if you uh, are moving forward, if you didn't move forward diligently enough, we're going to hold you responsible. and We we may actually uh, institute an enforcement action uh, against you. Uh, So they've really put the burden on the companies, even in this incredibly dynamic environment Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Yeah, that was the Federal Trade Commission, not the Securities and Exchange Commission. But the FTC did publish an alert on January 4th, I think it was, uh, specifically warning and reminding companies that you have a duty of care for the data that you possess. Part of that duty of care is uh, making sure that your cybersecurity is sufficiently strong. And that means patching things like Log4j and the Trade Commission did say, and any other future vulnerabilities that might come along. Um, I think you could equally say that uh, this duty, same duty of care would apply to internal control over financial reporting. If you are not updating your software systems, your ERP uh, systems, and somebody gets in through a vulnerability and they muck around with your account balances, they authorize a wire transfer, they shut down your sales intake systems so you're not getting revenue for a week at a crucial period in the year. That's going to be, at the least, that is a material weakness. At the worst, you discover it the hard way and you have to restate financials and now everybody's going to court. So there are going to be a lot of agencies that are going to basically say, this is part and parcel of being a functioning business. Get on this.
3: Jonathan Armstrong, uh, from across the pond, what are you looking at this in early 2022?
1: Well, I I started off with a Magnificent Seven and I've included some breaking news. So I'm now, whatever the next one on from Magnificent Seven is, awesome eight. So I'll give you eight things that I'm looking at from uh, sitting from the big white chair at the moment. Uh, uh, Firstly, I think I endorse and adopt uh, Matt's remarks. I think his predictions are certainly very valid. I think some of them have actually come true. Um, I can't say much about it, but just before Christmas, we made, uh, we, we helped some clients in connection with the big Kronos UKG breach, and we're not acting for either Kronos or, or UKG, but we are acting for uh, businesses who have um, had their uh, payroll function disabled effectively by a ransomware attack on Kronos UKG. And that seems to be log forge. although the details uh, are awaited. So I think these things are reality rather than speculation. And from what I hear, that might be half the Fortune 1000 hit by one attack. Possibly, I underline possibly, because one provider didn't uh, patch against LogForge. So I think these things are happening. And the difficulty is, of course, for most corporations, is the stuff that we had as core business five years ago, we now outsource. You know, if I'd have said to a CFO 10 years ago, would you outsource payroll? He'd probably say, are you crazy? That's a core function. My team does it. We keep it in-house. Now, I bet if you went through all of the Fortune 100, I'd be surprised if any of them uh, were dealing with payroll in-house. So we've shifted our vulnerability without adding resource in the compliance team, for example, to assess that risk. And I think that is going to be a a chickens and roost scenario for many businesses in 2022. And obviously things like ransomware aren't going to go away. And just as Matt's saying that the US is trying to prescribe cybersecurity standards, then guess what? Everyone else in the world is as well. So if you're a global corporation, then you're going to have to take into account, obviously, GDPR, the extension of the NIST directive, which might happen across the EU in 2022, bringing a whole load of organizations into scope. And guess what? This is also a political piece as well. Uh, Just this week, for example, I think yesterday, um, Walmart have had issues with the equivalent of that legislation in China. And some might say that this is an action by foreign governments to, to stretch their jurisdiction into U.S. corporations just the same way as they perceive the SEC has tried to regulate and discipline Chinese businesses in the past. So we're going to get this sort of almost Cold War by proxy in the area of of cybersecurity as well. Um, Some quicker things, I think we're going to be looking quite a lot of data transfer this year between the EU and the US and between the UK and the uh, US. There's a proposal for a safe harbor three, privacy shield two, whatever they're going to call it. Um, I will call it and say that has no lasting chance of success. There might be a sort of paper tiger of a deal done since its year of the tiger, but that will not stand up to court scrutiny and it won't be a lasting solution. So I can see why people are bothering, but they're spending too much time on something that the courts are going to knock out anyway. Cookies is going to be a really big area uh, in Europe in uh, in 2022. Uh, we're on January the 7th, when we're doing this, already €210 million Euros worth of fines for cookie violations. You know, uh, and we've just started the year. It's two big fines against Google and Facebook. But we will see more and we will see more somewhat trivial claims for cookie infringement. Almost no global uh, multinational's website complies with cookie laws in Europe, almost none of them. And as a result, we've seen these claims farms set up to threaten proceedings and claim a relatively trivial amount of money, and people have settled. And as a result, these claim farms have got uh, braver and more well-resourced. And for many corporations, you've either got to put your line in the sand and resist these claims, or they will come back and back and back and back. So we've had some, uh, uh, you know, as I sit here, a hundred percent success in knocking back these claims, but they will feed like um, like locusts on businesses that do not get cookies right. So we've got this double whammy, if you like, of regulators getting more active, and. Uh, class action lawyers and claimants coming along behind and and, and, and picking up uh, where the regulators have left off. Um, 2022, we'll see some significant GDPR appeals. Uh, two of the biggest will be Amazon appealing its 746 million euro GDPR fine and WhatsApp appealing its 225 million euro fine. The second one will almost certainly be a pretty mean spat. You know, it'll be the equivalent of the rumble in the jungle in GDPR terms with two big heavyweights, maybe three, slugging it out. The EDPB and the Commission in the red corner and WhatsApp in the blue corner, and maybe Ireland uh, adding an uh, an orange corner uh, and, and coming in from the side. So that'll be a big fight to watch. Uh, the European whistleblowing directive, the EU whistleblowing directive will start to gain traction in 2022. As many people know, the deadline was December 17th, 2021. Uh, I've seen my first uh, case of a a disgruntled employee who claims to be a whistleblower to get uh, the advantage of the provisions under the directive. We'll see hundreds more of those. So organizations are going to have to get much better at dealing with whistleblower complaints. And again, it's the same issue, Matt, around people having outsourced this. Very few corporations deal with whistleblowers in-house now. So again, it's a question of disciplining your providers, telling them what you expect of them. Uh, Only three to go. Supply chain issues, I absolutely agree with Matt. That was on my list as well. Uh, China particularly, we will see new uh, uh, um, interpretations of existing legislation, possibly from the UK government, possibly new legislation, possibly similar to US legislation with uh, port seizures, etc. I hear from a number from a number of clients that port seizures of uh, Uyghur origin goods are causing some corporations particular issues now, not because necessarily the goods are from. Uh, Xinjiang, but because there's a reversed burden of proof and it's quite hard to speak to the US authorities to produce the evidence you have and then get them to move quickly. So if you're a fashion retailer, you might get the goods released, but then they might be out of season. And what are you going to do with those goods? I think we'll have equivalent uh, uh, pressure to look at equivalent uh, customs and border uh, uh, across the EU and the UK. Do not underestimate how strongly UK politicians feel about this. Some of them, of course, have been sanctioned by the Chinese authorities, which makes them more likely to act, not less likely. Uh, A politician who's on a crusade and is then sanctioned by a foreign government doesn't withdraw from the crusade. Uh, That's the headline news. Um, The breaking news I have for you is Airbus's uh, bribery fine. You'll remember a, a, a significant investigation into bribery at Airbus. That again seems to be a civil action following regulators. Uh, at a, About 15 minutes ago, I, I just got the news that a claim had been lodged in the Dutch courts claiming €340 million, euros, principally against, um, it seems, Airbus and or its board for failure to prevent bribery. I'm told, I haven't been able to look at this yet, Mr. Marks maybe has more accurate information, but I'm told that both KPMG and EY have been joined into the action as defendants as well. The allegation seems to be that auditors should be looking for bribes and bribes uh, as endemic as they seem to have been in Airbus should have been on the auditor's agenda and should have been reported. And my very last one of my awesome eight, uh, again, it's a rumble in the jungle type uh, fight, I think, is the spat between the U.S. authorities, Uber, and its former CSO, Sullivan. So for those of you who haven't followed this story, the allegation is that there was a hack on Uber. Sullivan, the uh, chief security officer, paid off the hackers But he called it allegedly a bug bounty instead of uh, disclosing it as a payment to hackers. Uh, Sullivan is facing charges. Those charges were extended in the last couple of days uh, to include things like wire fraud. Um, But Sullivan uh, is bringing proceedings against Uber to try and release documents, which he says will say that the... uh, former CEO and founder of the business, knew the true nature of these payments. He, uh, he says that external lawyers also knew the true nature of the payments. And even perhaps more damning, if it's right, Uber brought in a new CEO to basically turn over a fresh leaf and say we're a completely different corporation after its compliance woes under the old CEO. And Sullivan says... The new CEO, Mr. Clean, was in on all of this as well. So uh, I don't know which side will win. I don't know who's telling the truth. Clearly somebody is and somebody isn't, but whatever happens, this is a fight you'll want a ringside seat for in 2022. We're
3: gonna have a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more from
4: Everything Compliance.
3: You've got a lot on your plate just to watch in addition to actually practicing law. So Jonathan Marks uh, with, I think you said, 12 inches of snow on the ground. What uh, are you looking at in 2022 besides shoveling your driveway?
4: I'm just going to call Jonathan Armstrong. I think he has enough. Then after that, I'm going to call Matt. (laughs) So I don't know that I really need to say much. Well, I mean, in in my world, I mean, I think from a regulatory perspective, I think, look out. Here it comes. I think there's been a lot of pent-up things that have been brewing for a while. And I think as many of you have already alluded, you know, some of these are going to start to flourish. And I think organizations and, and, and my prognostication, as I mentioned to Tom yesterday, is I think the board's going to get pounded. And, you know, some of the things that we're talking about are specialty areas. And if anyone out there is on a board and you're listening to me, go find help if you don't know what you're doing and you, or you don't know what you're dealing with. You can't do it alone. Um, you know, I don't know everything. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Never was. Never will be. You know, but I do know who to call if I do have a question. The board needs to do the same thing. And I think if they don't, they're going to start to get punished severely. And I think we're starting to see inklings of that creep through through Caremark and these other things, and now the SPAC thing that just you know surfaced its head. And you know, it, I think it's going to be crazy. And I also think you're going to see the resurgence now of corporate governance, which I think most people don't understand what it is, what it exists. You know what it looks like, how it should be. You know um, how it should be structured, and you know what effective governance does look like. I think you're going to see the resurgence of that in 2022 as well. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about today was kind of interesting. During the week, you're reading a bunch of things. Um, I started to look at you know cybercrime and you know cryptocurrency and. There was an article, I think, in the Wall Street Journal that talked about cybercrime hitting a record $14 billion in in 2021. There was a report that was to be released or is going to be released and kind of interesting there because, you know, one of the things that we keep looking at is, is, is the financial institutions continuously struggle with and some other some other organizations as well that have, you know, potential money laundering risk, you know, embedded within their operations. But, you know, the volume of cryptocurrency transactions, although it kind of went through the roof in 2021, I think some reports have it, it's like, you know, $16 trillion up like almost 600% from 2020. The amount of cyber uh, of cryptocurrency fraud is actually kind of small at 14 billion, you know, compared to, you know, the overall number of transactions. Now, I just think that that's, I think that's a danger to kind of read it that way and think it's sort of insignificant because I think it's going to continue to grow because, you know, as we I think we can all attest to, you know, when you're looking at fraudsters or you're looking at people that are predator fraudsters, you know, cryptocurrencies can make it easier for fraudsters to obscure, you know, the source of criminal proceeds. I think we all know that and are increasingly becoming the preferred you know, currency of cyber criminals and the like. And so, you know, I think you know, taking a look at those statistics and, you know, kind of minimizing them or marginalizing them as compared to the total dollar value of cryptocurrency transactions is a real mistake. And so, you know, I think we're going to see more and more issues kind of creep through with that. So, you know, one of the other things I am I'm really concerned about in 2022 is the controls around, you know, anti-money laundering and, and, and other types of things, including bribery and corruption. You know, I. Again, I, I can talk ad nauseum about internal controls. I just think a lot of folks out there just don't understand them. Um, I don't. I I think they don't understand how to design them. I think they don't understand what effectiveness means. You know, I think if you went back and you looked at or you asked senior leadership of an organization, are supposed to be you know quote unquote the first line of defense and responsible and accountable for you know installing these and monitoring these controls. They don't even know what they're looking at or looking for. Um, and they don't know what a good control is from a bad control. So, you know, I keep seeing a lot of that stuff kind of creeping through. But, you know, this whole concept of Bitcoin and mixers and all kinds of crazy things that are going on, you know, in that particular space, and the fact that cryptocurrency or Bitcoin is being used as ransomware when there are cyber breaches, and then you have potential sanctions violations if you don't check on who you're paying. I mean, I, I just see this just going through the roof in 2022 and and beyond. I think the hackers are getting smarter. Um, You know, the the level of exposure, as Matt pointed out, on some of these things that have been, you know, endemic in the software industry for a while, I think are going to be exposed. I think organizations are still struggling to get some sort of foothold coming out of what I'll call the COVID-19 crisis. Um, you know, and they're focusing on other things. And if they're not paying attention to these risks and they're not setting or resetting their expectations at a very high level, I think a bunch of things are going to happen. Number one is I think you're going to see an uptick of fraud, which we're already seeing. And number two is I think you're going to see the regulators really start to pound hard on the compliance program, um, in particular from a resource perspective and um, also from using and and really understanding that, you know, sort of the data portion of the organization and using that data to provide the organization with the proper feedback so that they can continuously modify and enhance their overall compliance programs. So I know that was sort of a lot in a couple of minutes, but you know I think it's sort of the gist of what I'm thinking about. And then the last thing that I just wanted to say is that the way everyone's approaching investigations today is, is it's got to change um and it has changed for us and it's changed you know over the last three years on how we're doing investigations you know um, I-, I see a lot of other organizations that are doing investigations where we come in sort of uh, you know or looking at those organizations or i'm talking to some of my colleagues and it truly is a, a sort of a shotgun approach and it can't be anymore it has to be surgical i mean data is always involved but the-, the key thing now and the thing that's really causing a lot of consternation is you have regulators that are issuing, you know, all kinds of things, whether it's subpoenas or whatever, and getting the data and getting the data out and analyzing it has become a real problem with data privacy laws. And so I don't think everyone really understands and appreciates the level of of effort that really it takes to plan an investigation up front when you do have these issues, getting to that data, you know, looking at that data, and then still maintaining compliance with the laws and regs that are in place without really stepping on you know a, a bunch of thorns along the way and so um it's got to change and expectations have to change and a whole bunch of things have to change and the fact that we can't move freely anymore from a global perspective when i and i mean that you know you can't go from one country to another anymore you know the, if you need a visa to get somewhere if you're doing an investigation you know those things are slowing down um companies are shutting you out or quarantining you all those things really need to come into play so when you're dealing with the regulatory issue, you know, it's not only the standard blocking and tackling that you would do to look at those allegations, but it's all the planning that goes around this and setting the expectations up in the front. And they are going to be more costly because of this. And I think if you if if the clients understand that today, everyone's going to be in a in a better place. But if you if you don't take those into account, I think two things are going to happen. Number one is you're in for a shock when it comes to you know, getting your, you know, you know, you're looking at the cost of these things. And number two is, you know, if you really aren't paying attention to what you're doing, you know, you could have sort of these unintended consequences, meaning that you could trip a data privacy rule or regulation and put yourself in, in in trouble at some point, either immediately or in the near future.
3: Karen, do you have a question or comment for uh, Jonathan?
2: I did have a quick question about your general theme about the board getting hammered and this question might go to you as well Tom with your background in insurance um, I, I'm just curious what you think the role of or maybe the impact on DNO insurance is if the board is going to just continually get hammered with these with these claims
4: well I mean it's a great question it's something that we talk about all the time I, I mean I, if I was an insurance carrier and I had a DNO policy I would want to see some type of corporate governance, framework and some other documents and do some more due diligence here i mean if you all recall um when people when insurance companies started issuing cyber insurance it was sort of this one page thing of of, of gobbledygook and you know it wasn't even the right person that was filling this thing out and those things were entered in uh, I, I think now it, it's really incumbent upon you know uh, the organization and the insurance carriers um to do their own due diligence, just to make sure that you know. In fact, if you're going to cover um, a director or an officer, and they're supposed to have these things in place, that they are in place. The question I have is, you know, do they have the requisite skill set to do that? And how is that really done? You know, and you know, how did you keep up with that and everything else that's going on? I think it's going to be tough, but I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's one that you know we've kind of bantered about for a while. Um, I've talked to some insurance experts about it. They agree that, um, you know, as these things start to manifest themselves through the court systems, whether it's an actual case or these CARE Mark things that are coming through, you know, these particular matters, that it sort of raises, you know, and opens up, you know, the aperture, so to speak, for these carriers to really say, hey, you know, um, should we really be insuring this company? So I think more to come on that, Karen, I think it's a great question and I think it's something to watch in 2022. But I do think that boards of directors, again, you know, it's no longer are the days where you walk in, get your big fat check, go golfing and come back and spend, you know, 15 or 20 minutes on the financial statements and maybe have a few executive sessions with a few key people. I mean, you really have to pay attention and you really have to follow along. And if you don't understand what you're doing and, the, and you don't have the requisite skill sets, you better ask um, or get yourself off the board, because um, I, I just think you, I just think they're going to start coming after board members. I think it's time. Um, and I think until we do that, I think until the regulators do that and the court system does that, then you're going to continue to have the same and similar you know year after year after year. And that's why the word recidivism is tattooed on the back of my left shoulder.
3: Jay Rosen, what are you looking at into 2022? Well, being in the cleanup position, I'm going to tag team
5: with what Jonathan just said about the boards, but I'm also going to be looking at whistleblowers, and I don't know when the first big action is going to happen, but we just recently concluded the Theranos matter, and on January 3rd of this year, she was charged with four counts of fraud, acquitted on four other charges and the jury remained deadlocked in three counts of wire fraud. Two whistleblowers who helped blow the cover off Theranos' secret blood lab and exposed Elizabeth Holmes of fraud were at the time just recent college graduates who wanted to do the right thing. Tyler Schultz, the more famous of the two, and Erica Chung, were low on the company's totem pole working in entry level jobs. Schultz was only 22 at the time, and this was Chung's first job after graduating from UC Berkeley. They both joined Holmes Biotech Company because they admired her request to help patients have access to cheaper, more accessible, and more accurate blood tests. But as they worked in the lab, the two came to the same disturbing realization. Theranos' blood testing machines were severely flawed. Although Schultz is not a household name, his late grandfather, the former Secretary of State, George Schultz, was. And the elder Schultz also sat on the board of directors and ignored his grandson's warnings that Holmes was staging an elaborate farce at her company. Tyler and Erica began ringing alarms in 2014 about the doctored research. But Holmes and the company's president, Sonny Balwani, shunted him aside. Surprisingly, George Schultz allied himself with Holmes and Balwani, creating a family rift and prompting his grandson to alert and talk to Wall Street Journal reporter John Carriero, who turned his stories into the book, Bad Blood. George Shultz was one of several marquee names on the board, and with Holmes now facing the possibility of years behind bars, it's worth remembering the feckless directors who failed to rein her in. It's also a reminder of how weak corporate governance and overly compliant and handsomely compensated directors have regularly played Silicon Valley startups. At one point, the Theranos Board included former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, former Defense Secretary William, William Perry, former Senator Sam Yun and Sam Nunn and William Frist, Richard Kovachek, a former executive at Wells Fargo. Now there's a quality brand name. William Fogey, former director of the CDC, Gary Ruffhead, a former U.S. Navy Admiral. Riley Bechtel from his eponymous company, Bechtel Group. And finally, last but certainly not least, General James Mattis, a former U.S. Marine Corps general who later served in the Trump administration. That's an illustrious collection, a veritable board of directors murderers row. But I'd guess that many of them were men who were on the board for window dressing. Some may have been there to help raise funds and at least a couple, hopefully two or so, were directors because of their medical experience and expertise. There's an argument to be made that Theranos' board was an outlier in Silicon Valley. Institutional investors with meaningful financial tip, typically populate startup boards. Other directors are routinely cr- recruited for specialized knowledge that helps a new venture navigate a complex industry. Even if you accept the idea that these things eventually sort themselves out, And that's the price of admission if you want to be innovative and connect, and if you'd like to have a kinetic ecosystem for startups, Theranos should also lag. Holmes burned through 600 million of other people's money and lied without remorse. Patients who relied on the services said that their lives were upended by faulty readings. Holmes was convicted of defrauding investors, but not of harming her company's patients, a measure of how hard it is to fully levy justice when it comes to white-collar crimes. So at the end of the day, 22-year-old Tyler Schultz had been working for Theranos for only several months when he became convinced that something was amiss. Yet the board sat by for years as the company problem snowballed and did so without consequence. Holmes now stands to serve prison time for her handiwork while her former directors merely stopped cashing checks and intended to their reputations and are starting to look for a new board to join. So that's what I'm looking at
3: this year, Tom. So Jay, the, uh, or Mr. Armstrong, do you have a question or comment for Jay?
1: Yeah, I, have followed it, uh, from a distance here. And I think the the whole case is, is absolutely intriguing. And I think Jay, I was at the same, uh, talk you, you were at where, um, uh, where one of the whistleblowers went through his story and, um, I guess about 20 years ago, I got an odd call from a Fortune 50 client. And they said, we want you to be on this new little board we're putting together. And it was a bit like Shark Tank, you call it there, Dragon's Den. And anyone who had a new technology proposition for the business had to present to this panel. There were three of us. Uh, attorneys and we we would say dumb idea we want to evidence on this we want this we want that and i said to the general counsel how, how come three attorneys are the best people to look at new ideas coming into the business for investment and he said well, it's coincidence that your um attorneys you're just the three most cynical people i know and um and and what he said is it's almost like they'd detect they'd invested in some businesses without doing proper due diligence. And they said it was a little bit like Emperor's New Clothes. The sort of the junior guy doesn't really understand what it's all about, but he doesn't want to show his ignorance. So instead of being neutral, he says, We've got this great idea across our desk, you should look at it. And he thinks Well, the guy above me is bound to ask the questions I should have asked. And it goes through the whole organization. So that's how you get to, you know, a hundred million dollar investment from a family trust, perhaps, because everybody thinks the person higher up the chain is going to do the checking. But obviously, with new technology, with new ventures like this, the person the highest up the chain is the least qualified to analyze the technology because they're not likely to be a digital native, etc., etc. et cetera. So um, I thought that whole thing was interesting. But again, I think it's almost back to Matt's earlier theme about things like due diligence questionnaires. Um, what I found really staggering is my understanding is that there's a lawyer in this case who sends a sort of due diligence questionnaire. One of the items is audited financial statements. Uh, the business says you're not getting them. And he says, okay, and sends a check for $6 million. Now, maybe, Theranos, Jay, is some modern-day Robin Hood, is it? Robbing those who've got far too much money uh, for those who've got less.
3: Well, that's certainly a good way to end our remarks, or perhaps even the Pied Piper. (laughs) We are now on to fan-favorite shout-outs at Rants. We're going to keep the same order, uh, I'm going to slide in last. So, Karen Woody, uh, with your normal pop culture contemporary uh, shout-out, you what do you have for us uh, in the first episode of 2022?
2: Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to be kinder and gentler this in 2022. It's one of my resolutions. So I'm going to start with a shout-out instead of a rant. And it is not help culture. It has to do with this week I traveled um, back from Colorado where I spent a lovely holiday with my family skiing. And I had, I, I don't even know what number of flights canceled. So my shout out is to all the baggage handlers and people involved in that industry. They are so overworked and just so underappreciated. And its uh, I, I very much appreciated them this week when you realized how much it takes to move this many people around in the middle of a pandemic when there's snowstorms in the east and everywhere else. And so I just want to give a shout out to the people who are so clearly working so hard um, that, you know, they, they they should get a shout out today.
0: Matt Kelly. Uh, well, Tom, I'll go cynical to start 2022. I would like to rant about Elon Musk Uh, It's just before noon here where we're recording, so we only have 12 hours left in the day. That might not be enough time to complain about Elon. Uh, But particularly, I am annoyed with him for two things right now. Uh, Number one was this ridiculous two-step routine that he had recently done at the end of 2021 where he was publicly announcing he was going to sell off 10% of his shares and kind of like kept a running tab of what he was doing on Twitter. Uh, That does not, in my estimation, qualify as a 10B51 plan to avoid any allegations of insider trading. And lo and behold, as soon as he was wrapped up with selling his shares, Tesla announced they had to do a product recall I think it is the first product recall they've had, maybe ever, but it is definitely the largest product recall that they have had. And this is not even a software upgrade that you could easily do. This is going to be an actual physical thing that mechanics of Teslas are going to have to work on fixing the hood latch, I think, for your uh, car. Uh, To be honest, for the record, I actually like Tesla cars. I'm hoping to buy one in 2022. That does not mean I still don't dislike Elon Musk. I do indeed. My other big beef with him at the moment is this finger-in-your-eye stunt he did with the world where he went and opened a shop in the Xinjiang province of China, uh, a sales shop where he specifically went to go and show how cool Tesla is and how important it is to do business in China, specifically in the province where, folks, let's be clear, China is using slave labor in the Xinjiang province, probably in other provinces, too, knowing how heavy handed and authoritarian the Beijing government is. Um, I will entertain arguments that, you know, working with China is necessary. It can be difficult to figure out slave labor. I understand the realities of that. It is not difficult to understand if you are one of the most known corporate leaders in the world that you should not go directly to the heart of the most controversial place in the most controversial country at a time where we just adopted a new uh, sanctions law over products made by Uyghur slave labor. And up pops Elon Musk right in the middle of it to showcase his brand new stuff and like right there in the eye of the world trying to say slave labor is a bad thing and maybe we shouldn't support it. So I'll stop there. And uh, just I'm sure Elon will give us more opportunities to rant about him in the future. But he's already set a a good pace for ranting about him in 2022.
3: Jonathan Armstrong.
1: Well, I'd like to give a shout out to Nicholas Burks. I think this is a name we're going to hear more of. He's based in Nashville, Tennessee. He has two claims to fame. He runs Raffle of the Day on uh, Instagram, uh, which uh, hotly pursued by the US authorities who uh, allegedly have some questions to ask about raffle of the day. But he's a former sh- uh, uh, employee of uh, an outfit called Asurian. Uh, and Assyrian fired Burks and Burks stole a laptop as he left. And it seems that he effectively simulated a ransomware attack uh, posed as a ransomware gang with the data that he'd extracted from the stolen laptop and was paid $300,000 in cryptocurrency by his former uh, employer. Um, Perhaps influenced by the fine music traditions of Nashville, Tennessee. He went to buy him a Mercedes Benz, and uh, it seems that the authorities caught up with him in the process. Uh, There's some details. He's awaiting trial. There are some details of this case that uh, aren't uh, apparently in the public domain. Uh, It may be that the employer knew more about this than uh, seems to be public at the time. But I've long had a theory that we were in for a wave of what I've called a synthetic ransomware attacks, sort of fake ransomware, if you like. It's relatively easy to fake a ransomware attack. And obviously, because you don't know who you're paying, you could be paying a Russian gang. You could be paying a North Korean gang. You could be paying a disgruntled uh, employee. You could be paying your neighbor's dog. Nobody knows. And I think it's a warning lesson, really, that, that ransomware isn't something that you pay by way of a knee-jerk reaction. There's going to be a lot of synthetic ransomware around in 2022, a lot of criminal gangs exploiting people's willingness to pay. And Burks might have inadvertently shined a light on that from which other people can learn. Jonathan Marks.
4: Well, I never have a shout out, but I do have a rant. So my rant my rant for this week is the C D C I have no idea what's going on over there. You know, I don't know if I don't feel good for five days or I test positive or I test negative, whether I have to quarantine for five days, quarantine for 10 days. If I leave, do I need a mask? What kind of mask do I need? Does it need to be an N95 or a KN95? Can it be cloth? Does it have to be cloth? If I go out and I go to a restaurant and I haven't had COVID or I tested positive for COVID, can I eat in a restaurant? If I don't have a or can I go buy a card? Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and by the way, those FlowFlex antigen rapid tests, They're about as rare as a Madagascar porchard here in the United States. But I happen to have one too. I don't know if you can see these. I mean, it's obviously backwards. But you know, if you're looking for one of these, you might as well go get yourself a Madagascar porchard, which I understand is a species of duck because you can't find them here. So I just wish that somebody would get their act together and, and tell us exactly what's going on. Because if I had an organization that policies and put policies and procedures together like the CDC, It would literally be a three-ring circus. And the CDC, you guys are a bunch of clowns.
3: (laughs) Jay Rosen.
5: So I know in my New Year's resolution, I said I was going to get over football rants and raves. But I just read something that made me think the other day. So another view on Antonio Brown. Former New England Patriots star Rodney Harrison believes that Antonio Brown, the former All-Pro wide receiver, could be dealing with brain trauma from playing football. Harrison talked about the hit to the head that Brown received from former Cincinnati Bengals linebacker Von Taz Burfecht in the 2016 playoffs. Harris would like for the league to come in and help Antonio because what he witnessed on last Sunday was mental illness. It was CTE which is a progressive brain condition that's thought to be caused by repeated blows to the head and repeated episodes of concussion. Yes, Brown has made some troubling and puzzling decisions on his journey from the Steelers to the Raiders to the Patriots and now his last stop in Tampa Bay. But the bottom line is here's an opportunity for the NFL to reach out and help this man. We can make a difference unless we are just the cruel descendants of our Roman forebearers, who can casually flip a thumbs up or thumbs down on those who die for our pleasure in the Coliseum.
3: I am going to, I think, rant about, uh, Novak Djokovic, the world's number one tennis player who apparently is unvaccinated and he wanted to defend his Australian open title, uh, got an exemption, uh, to go into Australia from apparently, tennis federation, and a provincial authority. When he got to the border, uh, having flown in on private jet from Dubai, his visa was not in order, and he was rejected for going into entering Australia. Mr. Djokovic seems to think that he is not only above and beyond the rest of the human race, that he doesn't need to be Uh, vaccinated, but he can travel anywhere to do whatever he wants. And so my rant is about him, but I want to shout out to Rod Laver, who, if you don't know, is the greatest living tennis player uh, ever, having won two Grand Slams uh, over two different eras, the amateur and pro, who said, quote, if he's got a reason for the exemption, then we should know it. If you're a great tennis player and you performed in one so many tournaments, It can't be physical. So what's the problem? So, Mr. Uh, Jokovic, uh, I don't think you're welcome in Australia. So, this has been a great first episode of 2022. I can't wait to see what we bring up in our next episode. Thanks, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. There's a couple of new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network I'd like to highlight for you if you haven't checked them out. The first one is Design Thinking, where with my co-host, Karsten Tams, we take a look at this valuable social engineering tool for the compliance profession. Second is Hidden Traffic, a podcast hosted by Gwen Hassan, who takes a look at the scourge of modern slavery and illegal human trafficking. Karen Woody from our Everything Compliance gang has started her own podcast where she looks at the history of insider trading, but she does through, so through the lens of interviewing students from her insider trading class at WNL Law School. It's a fascinating way to learn about insider training in a most unique way. Finally, have you ever wanted to start a podcast? Well, 2022 is the year for you. Why don't you give me a shout at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And we can talk about the podcast you've always wanted to do, hosting on the Compliance Podcast Network. The award-winning Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.